Almighty God, in this quiet hour, we seek communion with you. From the fret and fever of the day's business and from the world's discordant noises and from the praise and blame of men, we would now turn aside and seek the quietness of your presence. All day long we have toiled and we have striven, but now with stillness of heart and in the clear light of your eternal plan, may we ponder the pattern our lives are weaving in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, our time together today is uh, titled, The Soul Searches for a Father. It's a Dallas Willard quote. Um, for those of you um, who don't know, Dallas Willard is a prominent theologian, philosopher, uh, who uh, passed away not that long ago. Um, I love him. He's an amazing thinker. Um, and he said, the soul searches for a father. Now, this kind of, when I read it, leapt out from the page um, and really struck a chord with me. Um, perhaps it did that because um, it's true and it's profound and, and I needed to understand more of what he meant by that. Perhaps also um, uh, it leapt out at me because um, uh, I didn't have a very good relationship with my late father uh, and maybe God was trying to uh, get me to deep dive into some of that kind of hurt and some of those wounds that were there. So today, the soul searches for a father. What does that mean? Well, the first place that I looked uh, upon being prompted by that phrase was uh, in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 15. Um, where Paul says to the Corinthian church that we have thousands of instructors in Christ, but not many fathers. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message by saying, there are a lot of people out there who can't wait to tell you what you've done wrong, but there aren't many fathers willing to take the time and effort to help you grow up. There are thousands of instructors but not many fathers. My fear is that um, we are becoming increasingly fatherless as a faith community, choosing to gather around instruction instead of relationship. Um, I mentioned before that um, I had an absent father, so mum and dad uh, separated when I was 12. And... Um, up until that point, I didn't have a, a great relationship with my dad. I only ever really experienced his um, affirmation through performance and achievement. So when I kind of won a race or did well at school, um, I felt approved by him. Uh, but when I didn't perform well, when I didn't achieve, um, I, I sensed very clearly his disapproval. <clears throat> and so... Um, at the time when mum and dad separated when I was 12, I was pretty glad, to be honest. Like, we didn't have a very good relationship, so I was kind of, at the time, I didn't think that it bothered me. 
But then over the years, we just didn't have a whole lot to do with each other. He moved to the country in New South Wales and I probably spoke to him on the phone once a year. Um, I saw him face to face probably every three to five years. And um, at the end of October, end of 2014, September, October 2014, uh, he passed away, had a heart attack and uh, he died alone. So wasn't really connected with his family, um, didn't really have anyone kind of around or in his life. And um, I remember when I got the call uh, from my mum to say that dad had passed away, I had no emotional response. Um, it was a Saturday night. I was a pastor at the time, a creative pastor. And um, she told me the news and I had no, no response. Uh, no, I didn't cry or anything like that. I woke up the next day, went to church, led worship, and my wife was like, Greg, what are you doing? You, you, need to, you need to deal with this. You need to connect with this. Go to Sydney, be with your family, because we were in Melbourne at the time. Be with your family and, and, and whatnot. And, and, so, um, and so, yeah, a lot of what I'm going to share with you today has come out of that journey for me, journey of discovering why I was so detached with my own father and how that affected my relationship with God. Um, but the crux of it was, was that um, I had an absent father. I needed to perform for his approval. Um, I became really good at performing for approval um, in any environment that I was in. Um, I felt the need to prove myself. Um, and I often proved myself really well. My strategy was over-functioning for approval. So um, uh, I would take on more responsibility than anyone else. I would get more done than anyone else. I would do it better than anyone else. Uh, and I uh, sat back and found comfort uh, and worth and value in the approval that subsequently came. Um, and I became trapped in what I call the cycle of approval addiction. So for me, this is how it happened. I, I felt like I had to prove myself uh, because I obviously was never properly approved of by my father. Um, I would overfunction for approval. I'd be unable to sustain that activity in a healthy way, right? So I was overfunctioning. It wasn't sustainable. Um, and I'd develop unhealthy coping mechanisms that just lied beneath the surface of my life in order to, to cope emotionally. Um, and because I had these unhealthy coping mechanisms that just lied beneath the surface of my life, um, obviously then felt ashamed and felt the need to prove myself again. And round and round, the merry-go-round we go. Um, and so I spent my whole life hustling for my worth, value and approval. I spent my whole life trying to prove myself because I was trying to get something through achievement and performance that only a father could give me. My soul was searching for a father. I'm going to play another song. This song's called Father. It's um, one of mine. And um, it's about God as our father.
Um, the first thing that good fathers do is they approve of their children. Uh, when Jesus began his ministry, the, the father, his father, didn't commission him into that season with a job description. The father commissioned him into that season by proclaiming who Jesus was in relationship to himself. So Matthew 3 verse 17 says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It was the fatherly affirmation as Jesus went down in the waters of baptism, a voice from heaven, his heavenly father, saying to everyone, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Everything Jesus did over the next three years flowed out of that proclamation from the father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You see, we can't understand ourselves in isolation. We can only really understand ourselves by who we are in relationship to another. This is an actual thing in psychology called differentiation. Um, it's developed really well by uh, Bowen's family system theory, if you wanted to kind of look into it further. But deeper than psychology is theology. And author Brennan Manning says this, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. You see, um, we can't actually understand ourselves in isolation. We can only understand ourselves by who we are in relationship to another. And that's why when the father says, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, with you I am well pleased, that becomes a really important declaration over us. This was uh, all Jesus needed to launch his ministry, this one statement. God was well pleased with him before he did anything great or profound. He was just a son. What we really need isn't a calling from God that comes in the form of a job description. What we really need to understand is that we are already beloved sons and daughters, that God the Father is already pleased with us as we are right here, right now. We have nothing to prove to him. We don't need to do good things to please God because he's already pleased. So we find ourselves more and more living up to the fact that we are sons and daughters in his household who belong as we are. The son was obedient because he was the son, not in order to become the son. Our obedience is because we are daughters and sons, not in order to become daughters and sons. It's not obedience to become, it's obedience because. So there's a mindset shift that we need to make. And I think a really good biblical story to help us make that mind shift um, is uh, the prodigal son story. Um, it is Father's Day, and it's the story of a father. It is called the story of the prodigal son, but I feel like the central character of this story is actually the father and not the son. And it's the father's response uh, to his lost son that really matters. 
Anyway, um, most of you know this story. For those of you that are new or visiting that maybe haven't heard this story, um, a son in ancient times goes to his father and says, Father, I want my inheritance now. I want you to give me the money that I'm owed now in my inheritance, which was effectively uh, the son saying to his father, look, uh, you actually mean more to me if you were dead than alive. Um, so give me what's mine and I'm going to kind of go off and do my own thing. And that's what he did. The father graciously gave him his inheritance. The son went away to a faraway place, squandered it, um, uh, lived like a rock star and, um, and found himself not long after uh, at rock bottom. He'd basically lost everything that was given to him. He was alone. Uh, he was um, as low as you could be. Um, and he started thinking, you know what? I think I'm going to go back home. Surely being a servant in my father's household is better than this. Surely being a servant is better than being where I am right now. And so he comes home, uh, he's re rehearsing his speech along the way, saying, I'm sorry, Dad, I just, all, if you could just accept me back as a servant in your house. Um, but the scripture says that while he was still far off, the father sees him and runs to meet him and kisses him and throws his arms around him. And he's so happy that the son's home. And he says, we're going to throw a big feast and have a party because um, my son was lost and now is found. Um, so that's kind of what's happened up until this point. We're going to pick it up from verse 25. Um, you'll see the scripture on the screens. Um, I'm going to read it to you out of the message paraphrase um, just, because, um, just because I am. Um, all this time, his, I, want you to, I just want you to observe the mindset and the posture of the older son. All this time, his older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Calling over one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on. He told him, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef, because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out, tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look how many years I've stayed here serving you never giving you one moment of grief, but you've never thrown a party for me and my friends. Then this son of yours who has thrown away your money on whores shows up and you go, out all, you go all out with a feast. His father said, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time and everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time. And we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's now is found. Just look at the sun. First of all, the sun's out in the field when the day's work was done. You know, so there's this, he's, the, son, the older son's there just working in the household, contributing to the household. Um, his response to the father was, look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief. It's like there's this kind of obligatory, I've been here serving you this whole time, right? So in a lot of ways, this older brother is, is, is almost got this mindset of a servant, whereas the younger brother, um, even at the beginning of the story, the fact that he went up to his father and said, give me my inheritance, the younger, the younger brother, the younger son knew that uh, he was a son. He knew 
what his rights were as a son. Um, but it's really interesting to watch the response of this older brother. Because I feel like um, what I want for us today is I, I want our mindsets to change from servants to sons, from servants to daughters, from obedience to become to obedience because. Um, another biblical text just to help us kind of understand this whole idea of changing our mindset is Galatians 4 uh, from verse 4 to 7. Uh, it says here, But when the time arrived that was set by God the Father, God sent his Son, born among us of a woman, born under the conditions of the law, so that he might redeem those of us that have been kidnapped by the law. Thus we've been set free to experience our rightful heritage. You can tell for sure that you're now fully adopted as his own children because God sent the spirit of his son into our lives crying, Papa, Father. Doesn't that privilege of intimate conversation with God make it plain that you are not a slave but a child? Some translations say, but you are not a servant but a son. And if you are a child, you are also an heir with complete access to the inheritance. So I want you to take the prodigal son story and I want you to take this scripture of, of Paul saying we're not servants and slaves, but we are children, sons and daughters, heirs with complete access to the inheritance. And I want us to catch this morning that we are not slaves, but children. We are not servants but we are sons and we are daughters and we are heirs. A servant needs to feel wanted and needed in order to belong. But a son or a daughter just belongs as he is, as she is. It's not obedience to become what you aren't already. It's obedience because of who you are already. You belong as you are in the grace of God today. It doesn't matter if you feel needed or wanted. You belong as you are, a daughter and a son. Your position in God's kingdom isn't based on what you bring to it. God is your inheritance. All he is and has now belongs to you in Jesus Christ. It's never been about what you do in God's household, but who you become. It's never been about what you do, but who you become. Fathers are primary, primarily concerned with who you're becoming, not your job description or your contribution to the house. That's, that's servant business, not son business. Fathers are primarily concerned with who you're becoming. You can take the hustle out of your life and ministry because you really do belong as you are right here, right now. You've got nothing to prove you're a son, not a servant. You're a daughter and you're an heir. Your place in his household has nothing to do with your contribution. You're not servants. You are daughters and sons who belong as you are. A servant will come to the father and say, tell me what I should do next. A servant comes to the father for instructions and we talked at the beginning about gathering around instructors and gathering around instruction. But a child comes to the father and says, Dad, if it matters to you, it matters to me. This is coming to the father for relationship. This is choosing to gather around relationship 
instead of instruction. I'm going to play you one more song. This is um, a new song of mine. It's called If It Matters to You. Um, and that line, If It Matters to You, It Matters to Me, is the theme of this song. Um, so just, yeah, have a listen and, and take it as a, as, a, as a response right now to the Father.
Um, We know that we're beloved, that we're loved by God. We know that we're daughters and sons with nothing to prove in his household. We know that we belong as we are. But what about God? Is he really that good? When Moses said to the Lord, show me your glory on Mount Sinai, the Lord responded with this phrase, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. So Moses says, show me your glory. And the Lord says, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. His glory is his goodness. In fact, there's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament called kabod, which means the weight of his glory. God's glory, his goodness, has a weight and a substance to it. God's glory is the substance of his goodness. The cornerstone of our theology has to be that God is good. His glory is the weightiness or substance of that goodness. Simply saying God is good can sometimes sound and feel like a bit of a throwaway line these days. Um, So I like to say it this way, that God is everything that you hoped he would be. The Father is everything that you hoped he would be. Jesus said, um, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and that I and the Father are one in the Gospel of John. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father's nature. And we know that Jesus only did what he saw his Father doing, again, in the Gospel of John. So if you want to know what God the Father is like, then it's safe to say you can look at his Son, Jesus. They are one in essence. Jesus forgives and frees the woman caught in adultery, which is what your Father is like. Jesus challenges the proud religious elite, which is what your father is like. Jesus hangs around tax collectors and prostitutes and doubters and sinners, and he isn't offended by any of them, which is what your father is like. Jesus weeps over the momentary death of his friend Lazarus, which is what your father is like. Jesus voluntarily submits himself to ridicule, scorn, the weight of sin and death upon a rugged cross, which is what your father is like. When Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? It sounds like a moment of great abandon, doesn't it? Where the father turns his face away. Can a good father really abandon his son like that? Did you know the, um, the title of Psalms in those days was actually the first line of the psalm? So when referencing a psalm, uh, people wouldn't say, oh, let's turn to Psalm 22. They would say, um, can we read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which is the first line of Psalm 22. So what if Jesus wasn't simply expressing uh, abandonment by God in that moment? What if Jesus was pointing to the fulfillment of a messianic psalm written hundreds of years 
earlier. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the ancient title of Psalm 22. I just want to read you bits out of Psalm 22 because um, think about Jesus on the cross right now. And if Jesus really was indeed pointing us to uh, this psalm in its entirety, just listen to some of the things that that are said in this psalm. So we know the first line, we know it well. It then goes on to say further down, all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. It goes on to say, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melts within me. My strength is dried up. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. Congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Listen to this. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, are not not far from me. And it goes on to say, I'm just going to jump to the end because it ends really triumphantly. It says, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. Again, I want you to picture this. Jesus is on the cross, but he's pointing to this psalm in its entirety. It's not just this moment of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everything in this psalm is relevant to what he is experiencing and feeling right now in this moment. So it says here, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all of the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. Hello. You're a, look at you. Hello. Um, so the psalm finishes with, he has done this. It doesn't say, I have done this. Arms outstretched wide, Jesus is on the cross. And he's still pointing to his father. He has done this. Not I, but he. In some deep and mysterious way, I think if you look at the father's hands, I think you'll find that there are scars there too. God cannot be so, hello, did you want to come up here? No? Yes? Bye. I'll talk to you later. (laughs) Um, God cannot be so disconnected from himself that the father completely disassociates from the son's pain in that moment. Whilst the son may have identified with our human experience of abandon, the father does not reject his son. God does not abandon his people. It's a common theme throughout the scriptures. In the most mysterious way, the father was just as present as the son was in that moment. The father doesn't walk away. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
It doesn't say, for God so loved the world that he punished his only son. It doesn't say, for God so loved the world that he abandoned or rejected his only son. It doesn't even say, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Sent implying that one stays while the other goes. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Almost like he was giving of himself. Think about their relationship, father and son. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I and the father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen him. I only do what I see him doing. Father and son, both experiencing something horrific in this moment as they conspire together to destroy what has corrupted creation and our relationship with him from the very beginning. Yes, the son experienced pain, but so did the father. The father's loss in this moment cannot be overstated or comprehended. He did this. He went to these lengths just so that we can belong in his presence, in his household, as we are. The father didn't just send the son. The father gave the son. And he did this because he is deeply, deeply good. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Um, theologian Greg Boyd puts it this way, and I want you to listen to this. Um, he says this, Perhaps the best way of thinking about this is to distinguish between the love and unity that the three divine persons experience on the one hand and the love and unity that defines God's eternal essence on the other, Right? We could say that on the cross, the former was momentarily sacrificed as an expression of the latter. That is, the three divine persons sacrificed their previously uninterrupted experience of perfect love in order to express the perfect love and union that defines them as God. Jesus told us, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, some deep and mysterious level together on that cross, even as a price was being paid, a debt forgiven, a veil torn, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit together as they entered into our humanity and brokenness in order to save it. The Father is deeply, deeply good. If you walk away today with one insight, one revelation, I want you to walk away with that. He is deeply, deeply good and our souls search for Him.